Hi, I'm Lottie Morley and this is LadyPod, the podcast celebrating wonderful women. My guests will be sharing their inspiring stories about how they got to where they are and a few funny tales along the way. This series, we're focusing on the pandemic. We'll be hearing from women on the front line and those who can help make our time in lockdown a bit more bearable. Today's guest is an Associate Professor in Sustainability, Nutrition and Health. Dr Rosie Green has a PhD in Epidemiology and works at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine as part of their Centre on Climate Change and Planetary Health. Welcome to the podcast, Rosie. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Uh, I mean, let's start off with what a mouthful of a title. Can you explain in your own words what it is that you do? I know. I apologise for that. It is a bit wordy. Um, Yeah, of course. So uh, epidemiology is something that everybody recently has become aware of, if they weren't before. Um, But it's a very broad science. So basically, epidemiology is to do with the study of diseases and how people are susceptible diseases to diseases. So it comes from obviously from the word epidemic. And everybody knows at the moment about the study of the current epidemic that we're experiencing. But there's more to epidemiology than that as well. And a lot of the work that I've been doing is to do with non-communicable diseases. So diseases like heart disease, like cancer, diseases related to the food we eat, so not the uh, contagious diseases, but all of those other types of disease that people have different risk factors for, depending on their lifestyle, where they live, what's happening in their lives. And one of the major threats to our health in the future is likely to come from from climate change and changes to our environment. And so that's what I've spent the last few years of my working life studying. God, that sounds really interesting. So much going on. Um, And can you tell me what planetary health is as well? Yeah, I like to think of it as a sort of a series of circles that get bigger and bigger. So we've got at the very small end, we've got our own personal health and all things that people might have heard about, like the microbiome and our special gut bacteria and everything that affect our health very personally. And then we've got the health um, relating to our immediate environment. And then there's sort of global health, which is to do with the health of different populations around the world. And then the biggest circle of all that goes around all of that is the health of our planet, which has a huge impact on the health of us as human beings. So planetary health is about those links between the health of the world we live in and the health of us as human beings. And that can encompass things like animal health, um, you know, the the animals that we interact with, um, the health of our air, our water, our soil, all of those different types of things. It's a big topic. (laughs) That sounds so interesting. Um, And can you tell me about the work that you do around climate change as well? Sure. Yeah. So my work is largely focused on food so I that's where the nutrition part of my job title comes in and there's a sort of two-way link really between the food we eat and our environment so first of all we know that our food systems have a huge impact on the environment they're responsible for a lot of greenhouse gas emissions because we're eating so many animal products nowadays so we're having a huge negative impact on the environment just through the way we're eating at the moment. So that's part of the work that I do is looking for ways that we could eat 
better so that we could be both healthier and have less of an impact on the environment and to help us to get to a carbon neutral society. And then the other major issue that we look at in our research is the fact that climate change is actually likely to have a huge impact on our ability to grow food to eat in the future. It's already happening in a lot of countries that grow huge amounts of food to supply the whole world that, you know, the rainy season is not as reliable anymore because of climate change. It's getting very hot. It's getting so hot that it's difficult for people to work in the fields to grow our food. And that's going to present a huge challenge for us in the future. So we're doing some research to look at how we can adapt to climate change and make sure that we can still feed people over the few decades that are coming. So does that mean we should be looking at going vegan or vegetarian, do you think? Yeah, I always say that, uh, you know, we're not saying that everybody has to become vegan overnight. But I think if people want to know that uh, some individual actions that they can take to really help to combat climate change and make a more sustainable world to live in, starting to reduce the amount of meat you eat uh, and replace it with fruit and vegetables is a really, really good place to start. That's really interesting. I have lots of vegan friends, actually, so (laughs) they'll be happy to hear that. Um, (laughs) So can you just clarify what you mean by carbon neutral? Yes, the idea is that we're, you know, we're constantly putting more and more carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the environment. And that is going to have a huge effect on temperature and climate in the future. So if we can get to the point where we achieve a balance, so obviously we'll always be emitting these greenhouse gases, but if we can find ways to reduce that as much as possible and then also find ways to capture some of those greenhouse gases, then that means we achieve a sort of equilibrium where we're um, capturing as much carbon as we are emitting and that should help to stabilise the climate. And you mentioned, you look at things like what happens if we can't pick the fruit or plant the crops or access that fresh food and what, what would happen if we couldn't do that? Fruit and vegetables is a thing that we've we've studied quite a lot in our in our research group. And we know that so the UK imports a huge amount of its fruit and vegetables and we get a lot of it from Europe. And so with Brexit, we're not sure how that's going to continue. And you might have seen in the last couple of years, we've had a few episodes where because there's been some kind of climate related situation, suddenly the shelves have been really bare of lettuce or courgettes or whatever it was at the time you know long before we had the terrible panic buying episode of this spring we were starting to see times when suddenly you couldn't get particular fruit or vegetables and with things that can go off quite quickly that's going to be an increasing problem I think that you know the climate change is becoming more and more extreme every year and it will be more difficult to source those things I think we're quite lucky in this country that we've got you know, very highly developed supply chains. You know, we saw in the pandemic that the supermarkets really quickly adapted their supply chains to find stuff that they that they needed to get onto the shelves. But I think it's something we really need to look at because we're going to need to think about where we're getting our food from. Should we be growing more of it in this country where it still rains a lot? Um, or is it better to try and keep getting stuff, more stuff from other countries, which has been our strategy for the last few decades where they're able to produce more of that food but where they might be increasingly vulnerable to you know the rain not arriving or it becoming too hot it's there's no 
simple solution to it, I don't think, but it's something that we really urgently need to be thinking about now because, yeah, one of the huge dangers of climate change is that suddenly we won't be able to get the food that we need to feed all of our populations reliably enough. Oh, that's terrifying, isn't it? <laughs> yes, sorry. End on a real <laughs> downer. <laughs> no, in my mind, I'm like, right, so I need to go vegan then. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, we, uh, you, you are right. What you said earlier about the whole um, people are becoming more aware, this, this does feel like a turning point. Like I said, I've got loads of friends who are vegetarian and vegan. Kira, producer Kira is a vegetarian, actually, doing her part for the environment. And... Um, <laughs> I even my parents my boyfriend's parents have definitely mentioned oh yeah no we're trying to eat less meat or we're we're trying to or even little things like we're trying to eat less red meat or you know so people are aware of it and they're you know in their 60s yeah I think it's I'm quite a believer in these things that are called tipping points where a few people start to make a small change and then more and more people make that small change and then suddenly everybody suddenly has a completely different attitude in society and suddenly it's unthinkable that you would have meat with every meal or it's unthinkable that you would keep animals in in certain conditions and stuff whereas before it was just normal so I think what we need to do is is reach a few more tipping points and then we can see some really massive changes for the better start to happen I'm quite an optimist though so (laughs) no I love that and and I I am as well because I'm I've had this conversation lots of times before. Oh, well, what can I do? I'm only one person. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but if everyone felt, uh, thought like that, then we'd never get anywhere, would we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you could make the argument about vote, that same argument about voting as well. You know, I'm only one person, so what does it matter? But if everybody votes, you know, mm. it makes a huge difference. It's the same sort of thing. You know, you you vote every day with what you buy. You, you know, you, you vote with what you eat. You vote with where you go. It's It's all, you know making decisions that that have a little impact on stuff. And you were part of the UK's first Citizens' Assembly panel as well, which is amazing. Uh, Tell us about that. What is it and how did you get onto it? Sure, that was a really interesting process to be part of. So the Citizens' Assembly is is a kind of jury that's made up of a 100 or so people from across all walks of life. You know, they were chosen to be representative of all regions of the UK, of all age groups, um, you know, all sorts of views on climate change. And they were brought together in a hotel in Birmingham over several weekends to discuss what we can do as the UK to become carbon neutral or, or net zero, they also call it, by 2050, which is something that the government has committed to doing. And the aim was to find out what ordinary people think about how the government should do that. So across all sectors, you know, should we be doing something about how much people are flying? Should we be changing our housing? Should we be putting solar panels on everybody's roofs? What should we do about, you know, the way we generate our power? And what should we do about our food systems? All sorts of different issues came up and people were asked to give their opinions on what they think the government should be doing and how far they should be going to get us there. As you mentioned, obviously, we're in the middle of a pandemic at the moment, and there's been a lot of talk about how it's actually a positive thing for the environment, hasn't there? Yeah, there has. Um, And I think it could be looked at as an opportunity. You know, there's not very many positive things that have come out of the situation we've all found ourselves in, but I think it's important to try and find positives. And one of the things that has happened is that people have discovered that actually there are some ways that we can change our lives that are not so difficult that could really help 
to reduce carbon emissions. So, for example, a lot more people are discovering that actually they can work from home. Um, you know, I'm sitting in my loft uh, doing this and it's and it's absolutely fine. I haven't needed to go anywhere. So we have an opportunity to do things like reduce the amount people are traveling. Um, and that could really help us to get to net zero and to try and reduce our impact on the environment. I think there's also a bit of a danger with that, that, you know, we're starting to come out of our lockdown now and everybody's at the at the point where they feel like maybe things could return to normal. But I think from a climate change perspective, it's quite important that we don't return to normal in every way to do the things that we were doing before, because we've got that chance now to do things in a different and maybe a better way. That's really interesting that you say that, actually, because I'm I'm definitely uh, guilty of that. I actually I suppose it's not guilty. It's a good thing. But before the lockdown, I was actually um, about to buy a new car. Because yeah. my car's really old, basically, and I needed a I needed a new one. It was falling apart, and actually, since the lockdown, I've kind of been like, "Do I actually need it? Probably not." And I don't. And and actually, I'm I'm not going to buy one now. I'm going to just use that when I need it. Um, luckily, actually, we're mo- our work is moving, so I'm going to be able to walk to work, which is, to be honest, the main time I use my car anyway is just to go to just to drive to work. Yeah. Um, we walk to the shops and that sort of thing. So yeah, it's interesting because I think a lot of people have gone. Yeah, maybe I don't need to uh, do this or, 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 like you say, drive to work and things like that. And actually, uh, employers as well are being forced to think. Actually, maybe people can work from home, even though before they've said maybe, maybe they don't want people to do that. Yeah, I think that could be a really positive change, hopefully. And I'm as guilty as anyone, um, you know, in the past. I've been flying all over the world talking about climate change, which is an insane thing to be doing when you, when you <laughs> yeah. think about it. And now it's, you know, I can speak to people at conferences or whatever from from my own house. And, and a lot of that travel is is not necessary. But, we've you know, we've got a long way to go. A few small changes, unfortunately, are not really going to give us the amount of change that we need but it's a it's a really good start and it's something positive that could come out of this situation absolutely uh, and you've worked with the world health organization as well haven't you to um to collect data to show how different countries have handled the pandemic yes that's right that's um a very lovely man at my place of employment called chris grundy has been helping to organise a team of uh, scientific volunteers who have been working with the World Health Organisation to bring together data from every country in the world on how people are tackling, how countries are tackling the pandemic so that ultimately it will be possible to determine which strategies were the most successful um, in combating it. And hopefully, you know, the next time one of these situations comes around, we'll be much better informed because we'll have this huge amount of data. So, there are lots of scientists out there giving up their evenings and weekends to uh, to sorting out that data, and it's a really nice thing to be part of. And and what have you what have you seen so far? Or are you not that far along yet? Um, it's probably a little bit too soon to draw any conclusions from it, but um, I mean, you can see in the news actually that some countries and some territories have been incredibly successful at shutting down their epidemics and mostly those do seem to be the ones that acted early and acted quite strongly Um, and I think that's going to be really interesting. I think also we have a long way to go in this epidemic it's by no means near the end and you know there will be peaks and troughs I'm sure so I think it'll be a long time before we really see the results of uh, which countries have done the best job but yeah I think we're getting some early indications now that 
definitely some countries have done an amazing job of shutting it down really quickly. New Zealand springs to mind. Also Guernsey, strangely, I've been doing some work on Guernsey and they've they had an incredible success at um, at stopping the transmission. Wow, that's interesting. And um, what about the rest of the UK? How, how are we faring? Well, <laughs> I think probably not the best. Um, it's again, it's really early to say and there are lots of different factors that come into play. But, uh, you know, the level of transmission that we got up to early on in the epidemic made it then really difficult to stop the spread. And I think that's something we can really learn from in future that actually the spread of the disease got quite out of control here quite early on. And now it's been a much longer process of trying to bring it down again. So Mm. it's all, yeah, this is a disease we've never seen before. So nobody really knew the best way to handle it, but we're learning all the time, hopefully. And that's part of what epidemiologists do is to, is to learn from these experiences, bring all the data together and try to make sure that we can handle it better the next time something like this comes along. So for people listening who might be thinking that this pandemic is on its way out and, you know, we're going to be going be, be able to go on holiday in September and, you know, things like that. Can you just give us a, a sort of an, an idea? You said this is almost like the tip of the iceberg. You know, what, what do you think? Can you make a prediction of what is going to happen over the next, you know, however many months? I'm not an infectious disease epidemiologist, so I would never claim to be an expert on that sort of thing. It's not that's not my area at all. Um, but I'd have to say it's really it's really difficult to tell at this point um, as an observer. You know, I think it's important to remember that this is a this is a worldwide pandemic. And as it's starting to come mostly under more control in Europe, it's burgeoning in other countries. So, you know, in, in Latin America, And, you know, there's still the potential of a large amount of spread in sub-Saharan Africa and countries that are really, really going to struggle to contain the virus because their health systems are already under so much pressure. So I think globally, certainly, it has a long way to run, although I would have no particular predictions for what's going to happen in this country. Yeah, no, and I, I, I totally appreciate that. I just you have much more of an idea than some some people who might listen. Do you know what I mean? I've sure. seen loads of people on Facebook being like, oh yeah, no worries, you know, I'm, I'm booking a holiday or whatever. And I'm like, do you not realise this is actually not 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 done? It's not done yet. Yeah. This, is, this is an ongoing situation. And until we have a vaccine, and potentially even if we do have a vaccine, it's not going completely away anytime soon. So, you know, the, the efforts that people are making to, to produce a vaccine are incredible. We've never seen anything like it before. And that's amazing but it's we're not there yet so we have to be a little bit patient still and so uh, you said that you you look at how we can have more sustainable diets that's really interesting in itself so can you tell me a bit more about that how do you like where do you start with that um it depends on the country that we're looking at so we're doing a lot of work in the UK at the moment and the UK is at a stage at the moment where we've got a real opportunity to change. It's a bit like with the pandemic, you know, it's nice to see these opportunities for where people can see that maybe we could start to do things a little bit differently. So with Brexit happening and with the pandemic happening um, and the UK is just about to put a new agriculture bill through Parliament. So there's we're at a sort of moment in the UK where it's really useful for us to be thinking about, OK, what do we actually want to do? how can we become healthier? How can we reduce our impact on the environment from food? And that's something that we're involved with right now. So we know that 
in the UK, our average diets are really not very good. We have a healthy eating guide, but we're a very, very long way away from following it. So the last piece of research we did looked at about the diets of about six and a half thousand people in the UK. And we have detailed data on, on what they're eating. And only seven of those people met the dietary guidelines in the UK. So they must be quite a special seven. <laughs> wow. But, um, yeah. So we're not we're not really doing very well in terms of healthy eating. And those guidelines are just they're just things like don't eat too much salt or sugar, eat enough fruit and vegetables, that sort of thing. It's not you know, they're not particularly prescriptive guidelines, but we're just not doing very well at eating the stuff that would make us healthy and it can have a really powerful impact on our health you know if we eat an unhealthy diet for the whole of our lives that has a huge impact on our on our risk of disease so one of the things that we're trying to do is find ways that we could help people to change their diets to be a little bit healthier that would also reduce the impact of diets on the environment so that involves things like encouraging people to eat more fruit and vegetables and maybe substitute those for some of the meat and dairy that we're eating because we're eating a lot of meat and dairy on average in this country and it's not particularly good for us and it's also certainly not very good for the planet. So if we can encourage people to eat a little bit less of that and maybe eat less meat and dairy but to higher welfare standards so it's you know we can start to feel better about the way we're treating our animals as well, then it's got a multiple benefit. You know, people can feel healthier, they can feel like they're treating animals better and the environment is suffering less. So we like those kind of positive stories that can help people um, to feel like they're doing good things across different areas of their lives. And why do we think we're so bad in the UK? I think we don't have a lot of time. That's one of the reasons, you know, we, we're in a rush. We're working very long hours in the UK. People don't have a lot of time to prepare food from scratch. It's easy to get pre-prepared food and a lot of the pre-prepared food is quite high in fat and sugar and it's often got quite a lot of meat in it. Um, it's been a sort of gradual change towards that kind of diet rather than one that's a bit more plant-based and, and higher in whole foods but I think there's there's positive evidence out there that people are starting to change especially young people um, you know there's a real rise in veganism among young people veganuary gets more popular every year um, and people across age groups are actually starting to say that they would consider eating less meat now so I think we're there we're at a sort of turning point where people are starting to want to change and if we can help persuade the food industry that they could help go along with that change as well then suddenly a big change doesn't seem so far off I think. And I know you said you work not just in the UK but in countries across the world studying how they eat. Um, is there anywhere that's doing really well? You know I always hear when you when you're trying to be healthy Mediterranean diet is that is that true? That's right yeah Mediterranean diet is a is a good example of of a, a slightly more traditional diet that's got lots of really beneficial food groups you know it's high in fruit and vegetables and olive oil and a bit of fish and not too much meat not too much dairy and that diet has yeah it's been shown by studies to be associated with better health unfortunately it's been slightly dying out a little bit even across the regions where people used to eat that way because these other ways of eating are so attractive to people you know the fast food is really attractive and um, the higher in meat and, and dairy diets are more attractive so if we can move back a little bit in that direction that's that would not be one of the worst things we could do I think 
So, so Rosie, how did you get into what you do now? Is it something that you always wanted to do? I wouldn't say it was, actually. I think I grew up with no understanding of what an epidemiologist is or does. I wouldn't have had a clue. Um, I sort of found my way into it a little bit by accident, by doing some general research work and finding out about things that I really liked. And I think I read a paper at one stage, which was um, it was by a guy called David Barker, who's quite famous if you're an epidemiologist. And he'd done this study that showed that what happens to you in the womb has an impact on your health in much later life. And I was really grabbed by that idea that, you know, that everything we do in our lives has a sort of cumulative effect um, on on how we end up later. And I was really sort of intrigued by that. So then I went to do a PhD in epidemiology and um, and learned a bit more about it. And that's been it ever since. God, that's mad. And I, I know, uh, because you told me, you didn't always <laughs> do science, did you? No, I didn't. I'm one of those people that... Uh, had a slight career change uh, halfway through. I my degree was in music, and I trained as a musician. Um, you know, I played in orchestras and and sang in choirs, and that was what I wanted to do as a child, and that's what I did for a while before becoming a scientist. People say that music and science are linked, and I guess for me it's true in some ways. That's interesting because I, in my mind, would think music to science is is a huge change of tune. Yeah, I mean, pardon the is. pun. <laughs> Very good. That was genuinely an accident. <laughs> yeah, and it is in so many ways. You know, it's completely different, and and I'm so happy that these days I get to do both because I get to do music in my spare time, so I've got a creative outlet, and I've also got this kind of science and learning facts and and things you can really grab onto that are concrete which I really enjoy doing as well but I mean they both involve counting that's the, you know that's the obvious similarity I guess <laughs> um but although if you can count to four in music you're doing all right and I tend to have to count to a bit more than four in my in my uh, <laughs> other job um sometimes we're really lucky and we get to combine them both you know where I do um stem work in schools often as and that all the people in my team do as well. And one of my colleagues has come up with uh, several nursery rhymes to teach children how to uh, learn about greenhouse gas emissions. <laughs> so sometimes we get to combine them both and sing a song about greenhouse gas emissions, which is great. I love that. That's a true combination of the two. And so you say you do music outside of work. Tell me a little bit more about that, because I know there's something quite interesting uh, that, that you do. I do. I'm in a band with my husband who... Uh, dragged me into his musical life he's he's been a singer his whole life and sung in bands and I had never done anything like that before I was purely classical as a musician and he has yeah dragged me into his world and now we're in a sort of folk group together and we've released a few records together we go when we're allowed we go down the road to a studio that our friend has in in London and we record our music together and uh, yeah, it's a really nice thing to do after a long day of work and childcare. Now, you did something quite unusual, didn't you? Um, instead of a honeymoon, you recorded an album together. We did. Yeah, we did. I love that. <laughs> we have two children. And so either we had to take them with us on our honeymoon or we just had to think of something else to do. <laughs> and we both really love Christmas. We're quite cheesy people in that way that we're, we're really into Christmas. And so we decided to record a Christmas album. We got married in October 
and so by Christmas we had released our Christmas album that we recorded instead of a honeymoon. Oh, was it, the whole album was Christmas. Yeah, it was a whole. Oh Christmas my album. goodness, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> and the strange thing about it is that you know you'd think there's a there's a pretty limited market for Christmas albums. You know, you might get a little bit of a few Spotify listeners in the week of uh, coming up to Christmas, and then not much else. But people listen mm. to our album in July in Japan and it's really strange <laughs> what? and what's the band called we're called imaginatively we're called Peter with Rosie oh nice simple yeah <laughs> <laughs> now you told me that that being a female academic with a family is quite unusual is that right I think it certainly has been in the past and I'm really hoping that that's gonna be able to change it's it's been quite difficult for me. So when I, I came back to work after having my children and I thought, oh, this, you know, I'm going to really pursue my career now and, and see how I can make it work. And it, and it is a struggle because academics are expected to work really, really long hours and be available at all times and that sort of thing. And I wanted to find a mentor, so a sort of senior prof- female professor who'd managed to balance having children against a uh, quite a high profile career and it was really really difficult for me to find anybody in that position who I could ask for that sort of advice and I thought that was quite telling that there are not so many senior female academics that have managed to have a family I think it is changing now because universities are realizing that and they're now becoming much more supportive you know my university has been very supportive of me working flexibly and especially now because everybody's having to work flexibly. I think it is becoming easier, but we've seen it during the lockdown. You know, it's all of these um, female academics that are coming on uh, the news and having their children coming in and out of the room while they're trying to talk. And it's, you know, you can see the the difficulty of balancing all of those different aspects of their lives. It's, it is really tough. I actually love that though. And we've had two, uh, two examples of that in a day this week, (laughs) one on Sky and one on BBC News. And two very different reactions, wasn't there? One, um, which was almost quite like, okay, cool. Yeah, that's enough. We'll we'll move on now. Quite, I thought, dismissive. Yeah. And then the other one, which thought, oh, let's let's have a conversation with this child and let's bring them into it. And actually it'll be a bit of fun. Yeah, I thought that was lovely. And it's so nice to see that normalised, you know, to to see that that is the reality that we're all dealing with and to make it okay you know and I'd say that I've had both experiences because I've been working at home with my children for a lot of this time and I have had those experiences where I'm on a call and somebody's been visibly really annoyed by the fact that my children are demanding my attention in the background and that's you know that's quite embarrassing and then but I've also had the opposite experience where you know everybody's waving at the kids and <laughs> helping to entertain them and and all of that stuff just to help me get through the work that I'm doing but you know it's it's not easy I had a I had a memorable zoom call a few weeks ago where I was ignoring both of my children in the background and just hoping they would <laughs> play with each other and then I turned around just having hung up the call to realize that my younger son had decided to use the Play-Doh box as a potty. <laughs> oh, no. What, a cardboard box? Is it yeah. plastic? Oh, <laughs> no. no. <laughs> and he was so proud of himself that I just didn't have the heart to say anything about it. Yeah. <laughs> to say, you know, that's... not quite, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> that is the reality of, of my working life at the moment. You know, I've been 
catching sick with one hand and trying to talk to government ministers with you know it's 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 pretty intense so it's really nice to see that other people are having that situation as well definitely and I think (laughs) I was really disappointed when I saw that interview where he was really dismissive because I thought actually I was watching it going wow how how are these two women having continuing to have this conversation live on air talking about something that's quite specialist you know one of them was a um I think a correspondent and the other was was a guest and I thought god that is I actually was really impressed yeah I think you know we're all developing these incredible skills actually as a as a working parent you kind of have to develop anyway and I think it's really nice for people to see that that could be a real strength you know going back to the the idea of you know female academics with children and stuff I think I've learned so much from having a family that that makes me better at my job you know I can focus on eight different things at the same time and you know multitask and prioritize and all that stuff because you've got to be able to do it with a family so I hope another thing that comes out of this pandemic is that we appreciate those sorts of skills and diverse kinds of experiences that people have of work a little bit more than we have done in the past. And we, we make things a bit more flexible for people. And hopefully that person that was annoyed on your Zoom call will get used to it and get over it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they're going to have Fingers to. crossed. So you've mentioned how the pandemic has affected your work. Uh, but what about your personal life? How has lockdown been for you personally? To be honest, for me, I've been very lucky because it hasn't been that much of a change. I've got two children under the age of five. And so I didn't get out much anyway, to be honest. We've been really lucky. The main difficulty, which I'm sure is is the same for so many people, is that, you know, we haven't seen our relatives for months. And that's really hard that, you know, the kids haven't seen their grandparents and we haven't really had much interaction except through a screen with people and especially for small kids and their grandparents I think that's that's really tough but we know Mm. that we've got to do it and especially you know as an epidemiologist I think you know you have to follow the letter of the rules because it's we know that it's so important for people to do that you know we've got to population health is about and public health is about everybody doing what's right for the whole of society and not what's right for themselves so you know we've got to get in there and and work together on it otherwise it's not going to be a success so yeah we've we've soldiered on (laughs) so how do you feel when when you see people breaking the rules or like uh, a couple of weeks ago when everyone descended to the beaches in Bournemouth yeah I understand it because particularly for young people you know I'm very lucky that I'm I'm boring anyway these days Um, (laughs) but if I was you know if I was 21 years old or you know 17 years old and I really wanted to go and see my friends of course I get it you know people are desperate to go out and have some social interaction again but in situations where places get really crowded you have to think oh come on people this is not sensible you've got to go home now it's there's too many people around and Yeah, I think people maybe do need to understand that a bit more, that if you're in a situation and suddenly you're surrounded by people everywhere, that you've got to know that that's not good. Definitely. I was watching it thinking there's half a million people there and not one of them has gone, this isn't about, this is a bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe I'll go home. It's a danger that people, like you said earlier, I think some people think, oh, it's all behind us. You know, we've had the lockdown, that's the end of it. And now everything's fine. And unfortunately... We're not there yet. Um, And people, it's really important for people to understand that they do still need to be taking precautions. I'm a bit concerned about what's going to happen over the summer holidays. So we'll have to see. 
So Rosie, what advice would you give to people who might want to be a scientist in any of the subjects that you work in? I would say, first of all, it you don't have to be what you might think of as a scientist to, to do this job. I think one of the reasons I never thought about going into the career that I have now is because I thought that it meant that you had to do just all science and, and that's not the sort of person I am. But, you know, if you have an interest in, in research and in numbers and that sort of thing, you don't have to be a medical scientist in order to work in this job, as, as hopefully I'm evidence of with my degree in music. And scientists come in all shapes and sizes, I would say. You know, we, we do all, all types of research and some of it is to do with interviewing people and observing their lives and it's really you know social and and you can really think about sort of behavioral issues and all that sort of stuff and some of it's really statistical and there's huge computer models that are happening and some of it's clinical people are people are working in the labs and trying to find vaccines and that sort of thing so science can be all sorts of things and it can be all sorts of people What would you say is the worst thing about being a woman? I would say it's not always being thought of as a person. And uh, to clarify that slightly, I guess, um, it feels like being very much not the default. So it's like there are people, people do X, Y and Z, and then women do this. Um, and that's that's something that you can find in my job a lot. You know, men are the default in so much of science. Drugs are tested primarily on men. They're designed primarily for men. Loads of medical equipment is designed primarily for men and women are the other. And that's the thing that I find hard to deal with sometimes is that we're, we're the other, even though we're more than half of the population. That doesn't seem right. And then on the other hand, what, what would you say is the best thing? I'd probably have to be really cheesy and say having been able to have my children because they're pretty great. <laughs> I asked you uh, how it had been for you personally, but is there anything that you've been doing to stay positive throughout the pandemic and throughout lockdown in particular? I guess I've been doing music, which is really, you know, always helps me to feel positive. And when you can't get out much and you're stuck in the house, music is the thing that you've always got there with you, which is really nice. And we've been doing a lot of gardening. I've been doing experiments with my kids, basically anything they eat, because they're quite into eating fruit and stuff, which is weird everything they eat we, we try and plant the seeds and try and grow stuff from it so we've got a kitchen full now of stuff like we're growing a date palm we're growing tomatoes oh, wow. peppers all the stuff just from seeds that came out of their food we're even growing an avocado stone into a plant and it's really fun it helps teach them where their food comes from it's really nice to watch the things growing every day and it's it's kept us all occupied so that's my top tip for being stuck at home with small children is just grow whatever you can in your kitchen Thank you for listening and thank you to our lovely guest, Rosie Green. Kiriko and Ennis produced this episode and the music is from Easy Peel. This is the final episode of our pandemic series, so thank you so much for listening. And you can catch up with all of our episodes on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And please do leave us a review while you're there. If you think you know someone who'd be great for this podcast, slide into our DMs. We're at underscore ladypod on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks again and see you soon. Mm -hmm.